ago. Um, but I can assure you, um, you are correct, I am even more handsome than the last time you saw me. So I know you're wondering that. Could that be possible? It is. So let's just get that out of the way. I don't want that to be awkward for you if it were possible. Uh, it is really good to be here this morning. Um, my goal this morning is to be like a Marvel, Marvel movie. So basically that even if my sermon stinks, at least you get a little eye candy for it. So we're going to enjoy that this morning. Um, <laughs> I, I got a million of handsome jokes. And what's funny is that you laugh at them. That tells me something. I guess if I was really handsome, that would be arrogance. But yeah, so, okay. So let's talk this morning. Uh, I really want to first just say thank you. Um, many of you may or may not know the impact that you've had on our lives as a church. Um, Mark shared a little about when, uh, it was, man, we, we came here almost 20 years ago, uh, joined staff, and then uh, we were sent out by this church to plant a church in South Central Texas, and then uh, we came back to be sent out from this church to go overseas. And we spent the last eight years overseas, and you have played a part in every single one of those years. Well, you know it or not, you have prayed for us, you have helped support us, um, and I really, I cannot say thank you enough. Because um, the beauty of being in a church is, is not that you get to come on Sunday and get to hear a sermon, which, let me just add, there is pressure to be in any church that at the altar there are, there are tissue boxes. I mean, you got to bring it, apparently, at this church, because people have to be crying at the end of it if it's, that's the measure, so we'll see how this goes. Um, but we, we look at being part of a church as coming and listening to a message, to sing. But realistically, we were brought out of darkness for a much greater purpose. And you are part of a much bigger plan than you can ever realize. You are part of what God is doing to the very ends of the earth. That God did not bring us out of darkness as believers so that we can enjoy sermons or even to get out of hell. God brought us out of darkness for a purpose to change lives to make God's glory known to the very ends of the earth. That's why we were created, and that's why we have come to know Christ. And I know it may not feel that way at all the time, and I think we may not always see it, but you are connected to something much greater than you can imagine. And I, I want to I thank you for the international mission offering that you take every year. I mean, if we had time, I've got three and a half years worth of stories to share, but... Mark said I only get three hours, so I'm going to keep this shorter than that uh, this morning. And, and in fact, I'm going to try. Uh, my mentor, when I first kind of learned to preach, had a tendency when he preached to, to match the number uh, found in the passage with the number of points he would have during his service. So, I mean, during his sermon. So if, like if he was teaching out of 1 Samuel where David found five smooth stones, picked them up, he'd have five points. If, if he was teaching out of Acts 27 uh, where four anchors were dropped, he'd have four, you know, and so forth. So this morning, we're going to actually be in John chapter 21, and we're going to read a passage where the disciples catch 153 fish. <laughs> so we'll be ready for it. We actually aren't going to be in that passage, but I'm only going to have 86 points, so don't worry about that. Uh, but before we begin, um, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you for the privilege of worship. And I pray that's what we would see it as today. That for a few moments there would be no school, no work, no COVID. That we would just sit at your feet and worship. That we would hear from you this morning. 
from the beauty of your word. That we would be changed when we leave this place, not because of a sermon or because of the songs that we've sung, but because we have met with the living God, the creator of the universe. How can we not be changed as we spend time with you? And so I pray, Lord, that you would help us keep our minds, attention, and, and our hearts focused solely on you this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for breaking into time and space and bringing us out of darkness for a purpose. We love you, Lord, and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I uh, am pretty visual, naturally, as a person. And so I like to, to see and kind of create a picture in my mind, especially when I'm reading Scripture, because context is always super important when you're in the Word. Um, we always have to remember when scripture was written, it was written to a specific people at a specific time, though it is timeless, and though we can learn from it, the context is key, to see it in its context, to see the moments as they took place, the impact on those lives that are there. And when I say that, I don't mean that um, we have a tendency to kind of try and put ourselves in the story, um, and I don't think that's great theology. Um, we often, you know, you'll read the story in 1 Samuel 17, and, you know, you'll think, am I David in this story, or am I Goliath, or am I the... The, you know, the nation of Israel cowering behind him. Who am I in this story? I mean, the odds are we're probably the Philistines who are trying to kill everybody. So uh, the, we're, we're not trying to put ourselves in these stories. We're trying to learn from what God is teaching in this. And, and ultimately, the, the disciples or the characters that we read about these people in these stories, they're not the focus. The hero of this book is God. It is Christ, and he's revealing himself and his character. And so I want us to see that in this passage this morning. And so I'm going to try and paint a picture um, with this passage, and we won't go through the whole thing, but I'm, I'm just going to kind of take it slowly, and then we'll just talk through it as we go along. So I'm going to first read, starting in verse 15 of chapter 21 uh, in the book of John, where John writes, when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. Feed my lambs, he told him. A second time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep, he told him. He asked him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved that he had asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep, Jesus said. Now, I think from just reading those few verses, we know something more is going on. Something, something bigger is taking place in this. This is more than a QA. and I, I imagine if I, if I came home from work one evening, or you can imagine if you came home from work one evening, and your wife was standing there at the door, and as you walked in, my wife looked at me and said, Scott, do you love me? I mean, initially I'd be like, girl, you know, you know I love you. What's up? It's good to be home. What does this mean? And then if she said, no, no, Scott, do you love me? say, of course I love you. And she said, Scott, do you love me? I would, I would take a step back and say, wait, something more is happening here. What, what are you really getting at? What, why are you asking me these questions? And I think to understand the importance and, the, and the, the power of this moment, we've got to go back to see the context. We've got to take back to the beginning of the chapter in verse 1 and see what is built up to this moment. What has brought the disciples to have this interchange with Christ on this beach this morning? 
So we're going to begin in verse 1, and we'll just take it through here. It says, After this, Jesus revealed himself again to these disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. He revealed himself in this way, Simon Peter, Thomas, called twin, Nathaniel from Cana of Galilee, Zebedee's sons, and two others of his disciples were together. So it begins the passage with after this, and that's the big question, is what is after this? And so there's a lot has happened up to this point. Obviously, this is the last chapter of the book. Uh, there's, there's been a, a lot of after this. And, and get a picture here for a moment. The disciples are, are hanging out at probably Peter's house. Um, they're hanging out together. They're talking. They're talking about everything that's just happened. Uh, they're still a little confused and probably very discouraged because they had just spent three years of their life with Jesus. They'd left everything, family, friends, job, to follow him. They had this idea of what was going to happen. They, they, they had pictured in their mind that Christ was going to come into Jerusalem. He was going to throw out the Romans. He was going to conquer. They were going to be his right-hand men on his right and left-hand side. They had this vision of the, the glory of the nation of Israel being restored. And yet now, everything's changed. Less than 40 days prior to this, um, Jesus had the Lord's Supper with them. And at the Lord's Supper, he announced to them that I'm not going to conquer Rome. I'm going to die. That's what I've come for. And even at that moment, if you really read, I mean, John takes almost five chapters to go through the Lord's Supper that night, talking through what Jesus said. They still didn't get it. They still didn't see it. They didn't see the impact of what, what did Christ really come for. And he tells them, but I will rise three days later. They're still kind of like, I don't know what he's talking about. I don't know what's going on. We're, I can't wait to get in and see what he's going to do with Rome. And then Christ is crucified. And just think for a moment, the devastation of that. A man they had followed day in and day out, every second of their life was now dead. All of their expectations are crushed. He's gone. And then Mary and Martha come in and say, hey, he's resurrected. We went to the tomb and he's not there. They're like, well, I don't know about that. Peter and John rush to the tomb. And of course, John, I love that he writes that he beat Peter there. Just a side note, he was a faster runner. He gets there first. It's empty. They're back at this house now thinking, what, what has happened? And then we read in the book of John that at one point after the resurrection, Jesus just shows up in the room. They're in there eating and poof, Jesus just shows up. Doors are not a problem for him anymore. He just comes in, starts to eat with him, and then poof, he's gone. I mean, just think about the confusion. He doesn't explain anything. He just shows up. Boom, I'm here. I'm resurrected. What, what does this mean? Bam, I'm gone. Then he does it again because Thomas wasn't with him the first time, shows up, eats a meal with him, doesn't explain anything, disappears. And now they're sitting there thinking, what does all this mean? So apparently Jesus has died, he's, re he's been resurrected, but now he just shows up for an instance, has a bite to eat, and disappears. What, what does this mean? And they are discouraged. They come to this moment of really a frustration. And in verse 3, Peter looks at the group and says, I'm going fishing. Now, we may look at this and think, oh, they just needed some rest. I mean, they, they've had a pretty tough month. And they, they, were, they went through the crucifixion, the resurrection, their confusion. They just need a break. But that's not what's happening here. In fact, rest is a good thing. There's one thing that we've, we've learned about our American culture as we've lived overseas is that we as a people do not rest well. 
It's, it's just not what we do generally. Americans don't know how to rest well. And it, I think this is just a side note. This is free of charge. It wasn't really part of it. I, I just want to say we need to be people that know how to rest well. It's important. And it's more than just being recharged to, to go and fight the world. Rest is a reminder that you are not in control of your life. One of my favorite quotes is John Piper wrote this, sleep is a daily reminder from God that we are not God. Once a day, God sends us to bed like patients with a sickness. The sickness is chronic, is a chronic tendency to think we are in control and that our work is indispensable. To cure us of this disease, God turns us into helpless sacks of sand once a day. I mean, think about it for a moment. Whether you're the CEO of a company or whether you're street sweeping, God puts you to sleep, whether you fight it or not. I mean, you may try and pull an all-nighter. I mean, the older I get, the worse those are. But you may try and pull an all-nighter. You may try and stay up as late as you can, but you will never avoid being put to sleep. It will come. And it is a reminder that you are not indispensable to this universe. It is okay to rest, to be reminded that, wait a minute, maybe I'm not in control. Maybe the world does not revolve around me. So this isn't about rest. There's something much more going on here. Because you have to remember, what were these guys before they were the disciples? They were fishermen. And so after all this frustration, after all these unmet expectations, they look around and say, let's go fishing. Let's go back to what we know. Let's go back to what is comfortable. This following Jesus thing is not necessarily working out as what we thought. William Shakespeare is credited with saying that unmet expectations are the root of all heartbreak. And that's what's happened at this moment. They had a certain idea of what their Christian life would look like. They had a certain idea of what following Jesus should mean, and it wasn't working out that way. And they were ready to walk away. Let's just go fishing. Let's go back to what's comfortable. Now, I don't know if you guys noticed, but this last year has been a little crazy. Uh, it's been a little different. Um, I, coming from overseas, the media does not portray America well overseas. I, that's, I hope that's not shocking to you. Spoiler alert. Um, and so, yeah, <laughs> here either. That's true. And so it... it it's not portrayed well. I didn't know when I, we were coming back whether I was going to get punched in the face for wearing a mask or for not wearing a mask. Either way, I was going to be in danger. That's at least the way it was portrayed to me. That I just didn't know what we were coming back to. It was just a different picture. Obviously, uh, media is not necessarily where we should get our information at these day and age. That's a side note. So when we're thinking about this, it, it, it's been a crazy year. I mean, there are probably more people watching at home in their PJs right now than there are sitting here. Though, I mean, what is there, 7,000 people in here right now? They can't see it online, so they don't know. There's <laughs> packed house. The word must have got out that I was preaching, and all of a sudden it's packed house. Sorry, Mark. Um, but we've had an idea of how we should live our lives. We've gotten kind of used to our routines, and they've been disrupted, and there have been people that have fought against that tooth and nail. They don't like their routines to be disrupted. And I don't think it's any different in the Christian life. I think people have a certain idea of how, how Jesus should act with them, how God should respond to them. And, you know, if we're really being honest, I think a lot of people who walk away from the Lord 
Obviously, it's, it's their own decision. But I'm not sure we always share the proper gospel with them. Tell me if this sounds familiar. Someone struggling in their marriage, well, just come to Jesus. Jesus will fix your marriage. Someone's struggling with an illness, well, just come to Jesus. Jesus can heal your body. Someone loses a job, well, just trust Jesus. Jesus will give you a new job. I mean, obviously, he wants you to be healthy, wealthy. Why would, not, why would God not want that for his children? There seems to be an air of truth in it, or maybe it's even more subtle. You know, Jesus will bring you peace. Give your life to Jesus, he'll bring you peace. Or bring, give your life to Jesus, he'll bring you joy. He'll bring you happiness. He'll heal your heart. Jesus loves you so much like, like our children. He cares for you. And I think on the surface, those are all good things. They're all accurate statements. But that is not the gospel. The issue is, the gospel is not what Jesus will do for you. The gospel is Jesus is the prize. To know him and to be known by him, that is the gospel. Not what he will do for you. Because so many people walk away from the faith or what they hold as faith because Jesus doesn't act like they're supposed to. Some of the most heartbreaking news we've had since we've been gone is when we've known people and loved people and now have known they've walked away from the Lord. And there's always one common thread. The Christian life didn't work out as they thought it should. In the end, what that tells you is that Christian life was not driven by the God of the universe. It was driven by their own wants and desires. That they had reformed God and said, you will act like I want you to act. You will do the things that I want you to do. We're in a one-way relationship. You do what I say, and then we'll be good. I mean, if you love me, that's what you'll do. That's not the gospel. To know Jesus and to walk with Jesus, whether it's through darkness, whether it's through hard things, whether it's through the loss of a child or a loved one. I mean, we've been promised struggles in this world. We've been We've been promised that. Jesus did not say he would make you healthy and wealthy and wise. What he said is, I will be with you. And the world has hated me, they will hate you. But he said, count the cost. Walk away from it all. But I think we've, we've reformed it often in our gospel, our modern gospel presentation. I will often say that if the, the first church act like the modern church, the gospel would have never left the first century. It would have died with them. You know, we, we forget that the church was birthed in much more chaotic times than we've ever imagined. And I recently read an article that a guy said that, you know, this 2020 was the worst year ever. And then, it, you know, it kind of caveat, it put it in perspective for me. And it said, uh, says the man who's never lived in any other time of history. And when we think about it in perspective, yes, I'm not going to downplay 2020 was a year that I think we all want to get past. But let's put it in perspective for a minute. It's been rough ordering our food and sitting on our couch and eating it. That's been rough. I mean, before the pandemic, I weighed 108 pounds. <laughs> You're not supposed to laugh at that one. Uh, I mean, it's, it's been rough. I mean, I, again, I don't want to downplay, but I think we need to put it in perspective. And, and I want to challenge you with something here this morning. I'm grateful that there are so many people here. Because I think there's a temptation 
to get used to the COVID lifestyle, to sit in our pajamas, to watch a message, and then go about our business. I mean, we're always on time for the Cowboys game, which, I mean, really, do you want to watch that anyways right now? I mean, and so, but it's easy to get into that and think, you know what, I, I kind of like this. And I can tell you this morning that if, if your walk with the Lord or your, or your idea of church is watching a message, now I, I know there's a time for that right now, but if your idea is I can be a follower of Christ and sit in my pajamas at home, then we're missing the point of church. God does not say forsake, do not forsake the gathering or do not forsake the watching of sermons. Do not forsake the gathering and singing together. He says do not forsake the gathering of the church. Because be real honest, sitting at home watching is easy and it's tempting. Because I don't have to love anybody that way but myself. I'll be honest, I look good in some pajamas when I get up in the morning. And it's nice sitting in a chair and just like, ooh, I don't have to think about anybody but my nice warm cup of coffee. And, you know, and if I don't like the message, I can switch over to somebody else because everybody's doing it. I mean, that would never happen here, I'm sure, but maybe this morning, but no, most of the time, no. And it's easy. And then we start to get in a routine where we start to think, that's okay. And I just want to challenge you, as this, as this passes and as this will pass, you would pour your life out for the gospel. And pouring your life out for your gospel is doing the hard things. It's loving those who are hard to love. It's being with people that maybe actually make you less selfish. That's what every relationship is formed from. That's, think of the beauty of God's creation. God wants you to be married because your spouse changes you for the good. He wants you to have kids because your kids change you, hopefully for the good. I mean, God wants you in relationship and community. Even if you're not married, God wants you in a community of believers because being around other people keep us from thinking only of ourselves, even in a world that is pushing that more and more and more. We're getting drug out of that. I have gone off topic and I want to get back. Because it's not about us. And if we really think back, understand what's going to happen in this passage. And I'm just going to paraphrase it for time's sake this morning. We have to think back to Luke chapter 5. In Luke chapter 5 is where we read the story of the disciples being called. And there's this moment in Scripture where, where Jesus is teaching and the crowds are so gathered around him that he, he sees these fishermen along the shore and he says, hey, can I get in your boat and push out a little bit so I can teach? And, and so he, he gets in the boat and he's teaching. And while he's teaching, Peter's listening. It's Peter, James, and John are there, and he's listening to this. And just through that moment of teaching, Peter looks at Jesus and says, Away from me, I am a sinful man. He's convicted to his core. And Jesus in gentleness says, Don't worry, Peter. From now on, I will make you fishers of men. And there was this moment where Jesus so captivated Peter that it says they, they took the boats to shore, they got out, and he left everything. There was a moment that Jesus means more than everything. But right now they're struggling with that. And I don't know, I, I hope and pray you've had a moment like that. Or at least have grown in your walk and your understanding of the Lord where you've said, He is worthy to leave everything for. Or there was a moment you cried out, Lord, I am a sinner. 
I'm in desperate need of your salvation. It's funny, the further we get away from that moment, the easier it is to forget. The easier it is to forget that Jesus is worthy of that. So as we look back at the text in verse 3, second half of verse 3, it says, They went out and got into the boat. So they've, they've gone back to fishing. They get out, they go on the boat, but that night they catch nothing. Don't miss it. When they try to meet their own needs, they catch nothing. Walking away from the Lord never ends well. And let's be honest, sin is tempting. We wouldn't do it if we didn't like it. But sin is like candy-coated cyanide. It tastes good for a while, but it will always lead to death. But for a moment, imagine that night on the boat. These are professional fishermen. These aren't these guys. They're not just with a pole, just sitting out and like, oh, no bites tonight. I mean, they had these huge nets, woven nets that that would weigh hundreds of pounds. And they would drop them behind their boats, and they would drag along the bottom as much as they could, and they would drag that wet soaking net back into the boat they would see if they caught anything then they would do it again and again and again and they did this all night long and caught nothing i imagine their back is hurting at this point i mean they're a little bit out of shape it's been three years since they've really done this they've been doing this all night i mean we're going to see peter's got his clothes off basically it's hot they've been doing it all night catch nothing And I can imagine they're just sitting out on that boat remembering the good old days. Maybe John looks and sees the hillside and says, I remember that's where Jesus fed the 5,000. I can remember sitting there and listening to him teach. Or James may look out on the lake because they're on the lake of Capernaum or the Sea of Tiberias. And he says, I remember that's where Jesus walked on the water in the middle of their frustration. And then maybe... Peter looks up and can see the hillside where he was confronted with whether he knew Jesus, where he denied him three times. And at night, all the, these emotions, because they're frustrated, they're, they don't understand what's happening. They don't necessarily agree with what's going on. They can't understand why God hasn't come to them and told them, give me your plan. And if I'm being honest, I have asked that many times. I've wondered if God had Gmail or something where I could just get an email, just make it clear, tell me what you want to do. But then I realized, no, he's the one in control. Let's just follow him. And then in verse 4, it says, when daybreak came, so they've been out here all night, into the evening, into the morning, daybreak comes, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not know it was Jesus. So this guy on the shore shouts out, friends, or some translations say, children, you don't have any fish, do you? And I just think, man, what a little salt in the wound. I mean, they're professional fishermen. They should have fish. And then there's a guy on the shore that's like, hey, do you have any fish? And so they shout out, no. So then I love this moment. There's now a pitcher, professional fisherman, no fish all night long. This guy on the shore says, well, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. I can just imagine being on that boat thinking, Oh, yeah, we've fished on the left side all night long. That's the problem. (laughs) Thanks, guy on the beach. We've been out here all night, and then, uh, oh, so it's the right side. But something bigger is happening here. 
because they do it and then they start to pull it in and in verse set it, it, it they catch the, so many fish they can't even pull the net in and if you go back to chapter 5 of Luke you see this is the exact thing the same thing that Jesus did with the disciples they fished all night caught nothing he said throw your net on the right side they pulled up and then it dawns on Peter and John shouts out to him in verse 7, Peter, it is the Lord. And I cannot imagine that moment. This, this incredible moment where the realization of that Jesus is the one on the beach. And Peter in his incitement in verse 7 says, When Peter heard that it was the Lord, he tied his outer clothing around him, for he had taken it off, and he plunged into the sea. I mean, picture this for a moment. John shouts out, it is the Lord, and Peter grabs his cloak, wants to be decent, jumps in the water and starts swimming. And some people have read this and said, oh, that's just Peter. You know, he was just, you know, he just leapt before he thought through things. But I think there's so much more happening here than that. This is not Peter being Peter. Jesus had taken him back to Luke chapter 5. Jesus had recaptivated his mind and heart. He remembered, this is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This is the man I was willing to leave everything for. And that moment of frustration and that moment of thinking that life will never get back to normal, I'll never understand anything, all he wanted to do was get to Jesus, and nothing would stop him. He wanted to be with his master again. But then something interesting happens. So in verse 9, it says, when they got on land, they saw... Oh, let me back up. So... The, the, the fishermen, uh, just Peter swims the shore. He gets to the beach. The other guys are true fishermen. They're, they've got a huge catch. They're not going to let it go. So they, they're like, well, well, just plan B. We'll just keep all these fish. It's 153. So we're going to, they even have them counted. They get to the beach. So they're there. Then in verse 9, it says, when they got on the land, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish line on it and bread. I don't know if you most of us are like this that have certain smells that bring you back to moments i mean just recently we smelled something that smelled like weed and my daughter said oh this makes me think of home and i thought oh that i don't know what to think about that uh i mean in our house you mean our city necessarily for that um but i i remember when we first got to the field uh we were uh, in a muslim country and we arrived the week of this sacrifice holiday and I remember, this, like it was yesterday, I was sitting out on our balcony because we didn't have furniture yet. It was our very first week. We had some mattresses on the floor. I had an office chair that I would roll around the house in uh, waiting. And we had these, this patio furniture out on our balcony. And um, it was the day of this sacrifice holiday. And so there were people just all around. I won't go into the details, but they were sacrificing sheep all over the place. And you could hear it happening in the buildings and all this stuff. And then around 10, 30, 11, uh, they started firing up the grills, and there was a very distinct smoke smell um, that I will never forget. And when I smell that smell, my, I'm instantly taken back to that moment, and the, really the thought of, I remember sitting on that balcony thinking, what have we done? This is not Texas anymore. And I'm instantly taken back to that, and it says at this moment that when Peter gets on there, there's a charcoal fire burning there with fish line on it. It's fascinating because this, this Greek phrase is only used here and in one other place, in John 18, 18, this description of a charcoal fire. 
And it's used to describe when Peter's standing in front of a charcoal fire denying Christ three times. I can see this moment as Peter gets on the beach so excited to be with Jesus again. And then he sees that fire and that charcoal smell that's burned into his memory of just recently denying Christ. Even though during the Lord's Supper he said, I will never leave you. And Jesus looks at him and said, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Sure enough, it happens. And it's at that fire that he did. And I imagine that smell hits him. And there's just this guilt and struggle. And I imagine he's tempted to say, oh, wait a minute. I forgot. I'm a sinful man. And this is just something you need to hear this morning. You're struggling, and you've said, you know what, I, I've struggled in my walk with the Lord. I, I thought there was something better. I've made it all about me. And that the guilt and our enemy whispers in our ear that you're not good enough before God. You should run from him. You should hide from him. You shouldn't go to church. You shouldn't read your Bible. You shouldn't worship. You should stay away from him because why would God want to be with such a sinful person? Here this morning, our guilt should drive us to the Lord, not away from him. Because he is the one who relieves guilt. Because there's nothing you could do or say or could ever do that would replace what he did on the cross for you. There is no guilt before him. So Jesus invites them to breakfast. And it says in verse 15, when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And we're going to end this morning looking at this question. Because the, the question we need to understand is what are these? What is he talking about? Some have speculated that that Jesus looked at him and said, do you love me more than these? And he, he motioned to the disciples. And I think that's just cuckoo talk. Because that's out of the character of Jesus. Why would Jesus ever say, hey, do you love me more than John does? What about James? I mean, come on, those guys really love me. I mean, Jesus doesn't pit us against each other. It, it wasn't about the other disciples. What we have to remember is there was something else that was brought on that shore other than the disciples. 153 fish. And I can see Jesus pointing to those and saying, do you love me more than these? And what he's challenging Peter with is do you love me more than your comfort? Do you love me more than your job? Do you love me more than the things that make sense in your life? Do you love me more than the idea of who I should be? Do you just love me? Do you love me more than these? And this is the question, I believe, of the New Testament that we must answer. This morning, I want you to hear, do you love me more than these? Whatever these are in your life, is it money? Is it comfort? Is it routine? Let's get back to our routine. Is it sports? Possessions? Is it relationship? Maybe a spouse or children? Many of us want a relationship with God on our terms, and it does not work that way. We must answer this question before we can ever understand 
the interchange that they have. So I want you to hear this morning, our God is a jealous God and he will not share you with anything. One of the driving factors for us to leave our family and friends and comfort and all we knew was that we wanted to be jealous for the glory of our King. And we knew there were billions of people that were bowing their knees at false gods. And they, they are not worthy. Understand this, the reason why God desires and expects your worship is because he's worthy of it. He's the only one worthy of it. Anything else we give our heart's affection to is not worthy of it. Only he is worthy of it. In Matthew 10, he, Jesus writes these words, whoever, Jesus says these words, whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever does, disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. Do not suppose that I've come to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Man's enemies will be the, mo the members of his own household. And hear these words this morning. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus is the prize. He is worthy. Nothing else is worthy. And I guess the biggest question we need to ask this morning is if God is bringing conviction to your heart and life that you have, you have left your first love. You have put your hope and faith and trust in things that will not last. And if he's bringing that conviction, the question this morning is he comes to your heart, will they be wide open, ready to repent? Or will he simply find a sign that says, gone fishing? That's the question we have to answer this morning. Is there something in your life that you love more than him? Only he is worthy. Let's pray.